from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today I'm talking with Patrick Lawrence. A commentator, author, essayist, and lecturer, Patrick Lawrence has served as a correspondent and subsequently a columnist overseas for more than 20 years, chiefly for the International Herald Tribune and The New Yorker. He has won two Overseas Press Club awards as well as other honors and prizes. His work has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including The Nation, The New York Times, Business Week, Time, Salon, and Counterpunch. Lawrence currently writes columns for Consortium News and Sheer Post. Patrick Lawrence is the author of several books, including Time No Longer, as well as his latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, Journalists and Their Shadows. Check out the show notes for links to the book, as well as to some of his recent articles. Patrick Lawrence, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, good to be with you, too. It's been a while. Now, you are in Mexico now, uh, an expatriate at the moment, but you may be getting repatriated soon um, of your own will. They're not having you rendered back to the United States. Um, You've written a book uh, about journalism, about a lifetime, your career in journalism, called Journalists and Their Shadows. And uh, I noticed that you dedicated, we'll we'll talk more about the book, but I'm very curious as to your dedication. You dedicated it to Sheila and Chalmers Johnson. Uh, What motivated you to to dedicate the book to a a political scientist of all all people? That's the the most dubious of the social scientists, (laughs) except for maybe economists. So why why Chalmers Johnson? Uh, It was Sheila and Chalmers Johnson, I am in memoriam. Neither is any longer with us. Uh, they were very, very close friends, um, and uh, I I met Chalmers uh, during my days as a correspondent in Tokyo whenever Chal would come over for some kind of uh, speech or forum or whatever. He would always make it a point to clock in with the correspondents, and that's how we met. Uh, and then when my time with the Herald Tribune was over, uh, uh, I got to know them uh, in California. They're, they were just a big... Chal was a very big influence on me, and the pair of them were great and quite generous supporters uh, when uh, support was required. You know, just a, just a big presence in my life, and uh, I wanted to make that gesture. Yeah, he was a fascinating character because um, he he was he he made his he wrote his ticket basically in the seventies writing about Japan and uh, and China them. first. Well, he his his these his dissertation was on was on China, but what established him as an academic was his work on MIDI. Yeah, um, like it still gets assigned to people who are in political science programs today because. It uh it kind of went against some of the neoliberal propaganda that was starting to emerge about uh, it was the, the it was the, the free first, market it was the first very serious dissection of Miti, um, the Ministry of Finance, otherwise known as MOF, um, and the the innards of the Japanese industrial structure. That's that's the distinction of that book. Nobody had ever uh, gone that far in 
before, right? What what you were getting at the time, uh, at the time uh, Chell published the Meaty book, you were getting Ezra Vogel and Reichauer, uh, you know, whitewashing Japan as a nation of delighted worker bees, right? Um, with no serious sociology to it, no uh, no, um, no analysis of the actual industrial structure, the political economy, right? None of that was in it, right? This was the great age of what we used to call modernization theory, right? Which was one of the most grotesque dodges scholars ever came up with during the Cold War, right? Uh, uh, you must. Well, it was it was better than I mean it, the it, modernization theory emerges in the, you know Rostow like the non communist manifesto and then that's right it is it, the idea is that they can these countries can do what Japan did like you can just do this and you'll be okay and it'll help you to, to develop and then other people came along with like um, dependency theory and said well that doesn't you know it doesn't actually work because of yeah. know, colonial things more or less. <laughs> And then Johnson came along also and, and put another nail in the coffin of modernization theory in a way by writing about how they had a very – well, it was it, – it's weird because he wrote about it at the time when it was – modernization theory was kind of abandoned more for like neoliberalism and the yeah. Japanese model was used to say like, oh, look, the free market works and you can develop as a capitalist country. But they actually the, – the weird thing about it is modernization theory – sort of was applied to Japan in a way because mm -hmm. Japan was allowed to pursue things like, you know, having tariffs and protecting and developing their own industry and so on. Whereas other countries, and they were, they did land reform and other things. Whereas other countries that tried these things would get like, I mean, if they pursued nationalist economic development, they would get overthrown. But Japan, yeah. for whatever reason, a very privileged <laughs> position they had, they were allowed to do this. And he wrote about this in a really incisive way. Yeah, um, that was the key to that book. I, I will like to add for your listeners, Sheila and Chalmers had two cats. They were called Meaty and Moff. <laughs> I remember he would have that cat in interviews sometimes. You'd see him. Like, he was a, a, an eccentric guy, but he was he was really brilliant. And when I taught... East Asian history. There was this documentary on um, on the Meiji Reformation, and it had right. Chalmers Johnson from the '80s as a talking head. And I thought, oh, this is this is the greatest thing because I know him from his other his his second career, his second act in his career, maybe the third, if you want to say, his mm -hmm. China. It was China, Japan, and then the most important one, which I think is most relevant to us today, is his turn as a real critic of empire. Yeah. So yeah. And, yeah. and did, when did you first know him? And did you know him before he had become that kind of critic of empire? Did you say when you first started to meet him? Because it wasn't until 2000 or 1999 that blowback comes out. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, Charles' intellectual journey was very interesting and r remains interesting to me because you see it happening w with a lot of people, right? Uh, he started out as a proper Cold Warrior. Right. Uh, uh, he was never with CIA, but he worked. He he did research work for C, for for the agency. Right. That was, uh, and he slowly evolved. Um, you know, he lived in Hong Kong in the '60s, so he was seeing all that uh, 
first couple of decades of the People's Republic, etc. Um, and um, uh, when I met him, I think he was partway through his tr transformation, maybe most of the way through his transformation. But uh, it wasn't, he hadn't gone to the explicit, you know, uh, degree he did with the blowback trilogy, right? When I was writing my large Japan book, Japan, a reinterpretation, Shilo and Chow were, were reading the chapters as I produced them, right? It's one, it was a phase when we drew quite closely, uh, close. And uh, at one point, Shilo would sort of caution me about saying this or that, and I exclaimed one evening, Chalmers, when do you get to say exactly what you mean? And he said, without hesitation, when you're 65. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, that's that's a good... Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, re I rejected that. I I didn't wait that long at all, right? Uh, but this kind of veers into the one of the topics in the book that I think is most original, if I can shift the conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could, otherwise, we'll get into Japan and Chalmers, and that's yeah, it, I which know, is fascinating, true. but it's, but I, I do, I want to talk about the books. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because his career, Chalmers your career is, as a journalist is similar to his as a political scientist in a way. You became more uh, aghast at the, at the establishment. Yeah. Well, from the very beginning, as I mentioned in the first chapter, I, I, I had no illusions about what we call mainstream journalism or legacy journalism, but I wanted to learn craft. You know, I was I was uh, editing, uh, I was foreign editor at at the Guardian, not to be mistaken for the UK Guardian, right? Uh, the American Guardian, one of the wonderful experiments in journalism, American journalism in the twentieth century. Um, but there was no craft there. You know, there was no. There was very little professionalism there, right? Uh, uh, and that was one of two main reasons I got into mainstream journalism. The other was um, independent media at that time. You just couldn't make a living. You know, you you had to do it. You had to moonlight if you wanted to do that stuff, right? But anyway, uh, getting back to this relationship between Chalmers' uh, trajectory and and the theme in the book, I, I resorted to Jung, right? I, um, uh, I uh, uh, well, maybe I can read the passage, right? Um, I, I, I say, um, where am I here? Uh, right. The work I did for independent publications over many years, it's just easier to just read this, right? Uh, uh, sometimes writing under pen, pen names and or without bylines mattered as much to me as anything else I did, if not more. But for a long time, this was the work of a shadow self. Uh, here I borrow from Jung, who seems to have borrowed from Nietzsche. Uh, each of us has a shadow. Uh, the Swiss psychoanalyst explained here and there in many of his works, it is that part of ourselves that is suppressed by convention, orthodox morality, acceptable taste, the exactions of employers, 
and other forms of social and pro professional intimidation. Uh, the casualty of these infinitely uh, manifest forces is the integrated personality, the authentic, undivided self, capable of judging and acting with certainty and without reference to the coercions of power or collective opinion. And um, uh, I, I think that's what Chalmers was, this was way before the thought of this book uh, came into my mind. But when Chalmers said, you get to say what you want when you're 65, I, I think that was our kind of, our topic, even though I was decades away from formulating it that way, right? Um, um, and to me, that's uh, this happens to every journalist, right? You become um, you become a creature of the publication you're writing for, right? Uh, as I mentioned elsewhere in the book, um, you, you, Descartes gets turned upside down. It's not uh, I think, therefore I am. It's I am, therefore I think. I'm, I'm a Wash Post reporter, therefore I think this. You see, um, and uh, uh, my argument in the book on this psychological plane, and I, I don't think anybody's ever treated journalism on this plane, um, is that uh, independent media are an opportunity for journalists to. Um, become one with their shadows, let's say, right? To say what they mean without reference to the coercions of employers or political orthodoxies or anything else, right? That's one of the features of the book that I'm most pleased with. Right. I mean, this seems to be the a defining characteristic of our day, and it's it, it comes into high relief at moments, historical moments like this, uh, which in a way that makes you realize that it's something that's always there and that we just can kind of, you ignore it when, or you're, you're unaware of it when times are good, but it's the power of uh, civilizations and how they in, invariably create, you know, absurd orthodoxies more or less to perpetuate or, or advance different power, you know, concentrations and so on. And yeah. then the weight of them becomes so, ridiculous in the end and, and counterproductive, but they can't be reformed for whatever reason because they've accumulated too much power. And yeah. I feel like this is coming to a head. And this is the, the journalist in, in the empire is, you know, has to absorb all these ideas and, and you know, how this cosmology that's absurd, that contains multiple absurd orthodoxies. And they, on some level, they have to have, a, as you say, that they have to have another part of themselves that is capable of reason. <laughs> Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, how much, how much of what you're what you're talking about now? I mean, I feel like this is a, the era. This is the time of like great disillusionment, uh, which, me, which really means the ending of illusions. And, and how do you, how how do you think that this era? You, you've been writing in this vein for for a while, so you came around more before other journalists. You were skeptical to begin with. But I, just, I think if people like you or Lawrence Wilkerson or Chalmers Johnson or Jeff Sachs, uh, even David Talbot, the people who were had a had some connection to the left liberal mainstream more so mm -hmm. and then became more radical. Or, I mean, even in some of these cases, like Jeffrey Sachs was a total centrist as an yeah. academic and Wilkerson was a Republican in Republican administrations. 
So what do you think? What do you, you write, you're writing this book as someone who becomes a dissident. What do you think of the characteristics that separate people, you know, like the ones I just was listing from the ones who are just impossibly wedded in, to the end, to the establishment? Is it just that they get paid enough money that they're never going to, you know, break or, or what? I mean, what, what, well, what makes somebody become a, dis, a, a dissident when other people in the same position don't? Yeah, well, you, uh, it, it, our, refer, our frame of reference is journalism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you have a you have a couple of alternatives in journalism, um, uh, and and it goes very simply this way: uh, if you want to earn a living, uh, you know, a middle to upper middle class living, uh, in in journal in mainstream journalism today, there is no room for. Uh, independent thinking uh, for a proper discernment uh, in in the Jesuitical meaning of that term. Uh, you either write what your publishers insist, what your publishers stand for, or, or you don't work there. Um, the, alt, the, the alternative is is the path I chose Maybe, but I would say by 2001 was the critical moment, right? I, I, I would say by, by 2005, uh, I realized there, there had been, as John Pilger uh, says, and I, I agree with him, there used to be a small place for people uh, of independent, you know, mind, right, with, with integrity, to report and write in in mainstream journalism, Pilger's career is, is you don't need to go any f further than Pilger's career for a reference, right? Uh, but in, that, in way, but he's one guy. I mean, there's yeah. it's notable that there's there's not like a bunch of John Pilgers. I'll well, say. there was he's one guy, but we know Pilger, right? Yeah. Uh, but there were others, right? Yeah. Um, but that, uh, that space has shrunk in a sense. Yeah, but. there's no law; it evaporated. Right, it's it's gone. I, I would say by two thousand and five, I realized the it's over. Right, uh, my back's to the wall. I I either I either lose my integrity, or I've got to figure out something else to do. Right, um, some other way at it. Uh, I I I knew I wanted to stay in journalism, or I was writing books at the time, right? Uh, but uh, if I stayed in journalism, and you know, in order to sustain myself and preserve my voice, uh, I could not any longer do it in mainstream journalism. That was sort of 2005, 6, 7. Uh, I didn't do a lot a of... Grim, that was a grim time. I mean, I, I think back to, like, that's around the time Gary Webb um, killed himself. That's right. People... Some, because he shot himself twice, people think that it was not suicide. I would, I normally would say like, oh, I, I could believe anything. In his case, they so destroyed him, yeah, uh, that I, I and that Peter Dale Scott, for example, thinks he did. I mean, he was killed. They assassinated him in a sense, but that. But my my bigger point is, let's set that aside. That time period was uh, brutal. Like that terrible. Was the, the the war on terror took us. It, we weren't. A bastion of 
the, the free press was more of a myth, but at least you had to maintain the myth in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It seems like that went out the window around that time period. Yeah, I, 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 I put it all down to 2001. I think September 11th, 2001 was, uh, was uh, a, a, a mark on the American story, the implications of which we have still not reckoned with entirely. And one of them was the, the press from that day on um, just completely caved. Um, uh, and whatever may have remained of it, uh, of any worth, went down the chute with Russiagate, right? Uh, Webb is, an, uh, I mean, you know, Webb was an independent journalist in the way we were discussing Pilger, right? Uh, so those are the two choices. And uh, I've made mine. Um, I, I don't want to cry in my beer, but you have to make very serious sacrifices uh, in, in order to choose this path, right? Uh, there are a few guys, a uh, few men and women who are just making exceptional livings as independent journalists, but not many, right? Uh, so you have to make sacrifices. That's one reason I'm sitting here in Mexico. Um, costs, Right. I had advantages, not to get too personal, but uh, I had advantages that other correspondents didn't have. The big one was I didn't have children. And, and you know, I, I watched my colleagues in Hong Kong, Tokyo, elsewhere. Right? Uh, um, you know, they had kids in school and, you know, they had kind of a, a much more bourgeois notion of of how a correspondent should live, right? Um, and I didn't have that. So um, it was easier for me to move in fully into independent journalism. One, because I had been doing it from the very first days of my career, but I just did it on the side. Uh, uh, and two, because my burdens, my material burdens were not what other people's were. My my f- final plunge was in 2013 when um, my third book back came out, Time No Longer. Um, and um, Salon, which was, let's just say, a lot more serious a publication then than it is now, uh, <clears throat> picked up an extract of the book. <clears throat> I was, pardon me, <clears throat> I was delighted. Uh, and um, they picked a good segment, passage, and um, uh, when it came out, it had a good response in the comment thread and all that, so I called the editor, uh, and that's when I started producing. Uh, my foreign affairs column had had been more moribund for some years by then, um, uh, and that's when I started uh, producing foreign affairs commentary such as we have now, uh, uh, in in an independent context, you know, I remember saying, uh, I remember saying at the time, okay, I, this is they're paying me taxi fare, right? I can't possibly live on this. I'll have to figure something out. But I have this feeling a door is opening, and I'm going to give it a year, right? Uh, very pleased. It was a difficult year, as were the years after that, but. Um, I'm very pleased I did that because independent journalism, uh, as I seem to have intuited, 
is is really blossoming, right? It's really becoming a very as I say in the book, it's it's where the dynamism of the profession lies, right? So those right. are the choices. You uh, you either surrender, and you know, drive home in your BMW, and uh, or you don't surrender and take the punches. is the significance is you have chapters in your book you have four there's four main chapters chapter two is about the soviets and you know the cold war and your your recollections of and reflections on that era but then the chapter three is nobody believes anything and then you do you get into this uh sort of miasma of uh just nonsense that that (laughs) comes over the whole nation uh after 9-11 and uh, what are your reflections now, 20, because you're saying it's still with us, and I think so too, but I don't, in different ways, it's like it's always 9-11, but it, I, I now see that as being, the, the Cold War itself was similar, like 9-11, 9-1-1, emergency, they have to have an emergency to, to do what they want to do, because what they want to do is run the whole world, and so 9-11 was just taking it, cranking it up to like, yeah. So that they could do whatever they need, because if your objective is to rule the whole world, you can't really be restrained. And 9-11 seems to be like unleashing them in a particular way. What do you, how, how do you, what's your significant, what do you think of that now? Okay. Over 20 years out. Yeah, you, uh, you caused me to make a distinction that hadn't occurred to me before this conversation. Um, uh, I, I think uh, there is a, a, a very profound difference between the Cold War period and the post-2001 period, okay? During the Cold War, uh, America, the the ideology, the orthodoxy was rooted in in a confidence in, in American supremacy, okay? Uh, in a confidence in our invincibility, okay? Uh, uh, at September 11th, 2001 uh, something happened that had never happened during the cold war uh we were attacked on our own land on our own soil and uh, as i recount not only in the book we're talking about but in the previous one at greater length um that was a, a a huge psychological blow for americans because the American ideology was that we were immune from history. There's a long literature about this topic. You must know it. You're a scholar, right? Uh, with the, that uh, uh, American, you know, the, the, the nation uh, over overlooked by providence, uh, the providential hand. Uh, um, we were immune from history's uh, ravages, right? Um, uh, and it was a it, it was the root of our notion of exceptionalism. This was the big blow of September 11th. I remember remarking afterwards, over and over and over, this footage of the towers coming down, looped and looped and looped uh, 
on the television screen. It went on for days. You know, I never, I never saw it. I, I, for whatever reason, I'd come back from Taiwan for about a week, and I never saw that until like 2006 or something like that yeah. was when I first watched the video. I don't know why, but I'm just like, you know, whatever. The, and it's not because I'm like a squeamish person or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just that like I was like this. Whatever, this is bad, and it's going to lead to bad things. I had that sense right away, and I yeah. did not even want to see it. Uh, I concluded that um, uh, the the imagery of the towers, the footage of the towers coming down, we were obsessed with it uh, because it, it was, in, in literary terms, a, an objective correlative. It, it was... It was the image of our consciousness of ourselves collapsing. That's what was really collapsing, right? That's what really moved us and um, sent us into uh, something, some distance on the way to panic. Uh, that was different from the Cold War. We, we lost all our confidence then. And uh, my point here is that the empire uh, was was from that time on on its back foot. And I think it is now too. Uh, and in such conditions, uh, uh, in such, you know, it, it, in, a, in, a in a condition of uh, imperial decline, all institutions must be recruited to the cause. Uh, cultural institutions, universities, uh, museums uh uh and certainly the media um and i think that's what happened after 2001 the media as i say in the book let's not traffic in golden ages okay i i don't go for them uh but the the media from that time on just became cravenly in servitude to the national security state, uh, and 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 RussiaGate tipped it way over the top. At this point, it it's I I, I say to Kara in the morning, uh, they're repeating utter fictions, right? Just to take an example from the newspapers this past week, uh, Israel is defending human life and the rule of law. Right. We're supposed to believe that. I mean, uh, the the only good thing to say about that is that fewer and fewer people accept it. So, um, uh, you know, it's it's the media have tumbled into, you know, just outright propaganda, right? Um, one of my favorite headlines of the last week is, "Thank God, a person of Biden's age is president now." Wait, please. <laughs> what are you talking about, right? <laughs> right. Um, and you know, <laughs> never mind. You you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I think about the twenty first century, and it just seems like an unmitigated debacle for the United States. And even the things that seem good are disastrous. Obama, who I worked for on his campaign, was a total mm. disaster. Uh, he. In that, in that he made look, he made things look attractive that were terrible. Like he, he yeah. more or less continued. He used the Arab Spring to continue the not the nine eleven wars that uh that that the you know that they wanted before nine eleven. We know they wanted to do these things before nine eleven. 
Um, they were talking in the week, the day before 9-11, uh, they had a meeting about going into Afghanistan, you know, and how they needed to like, right. they needed a political and military solution to deal with this problem with Afghanistan. 9-11 comes, they use it to, to launch these long planned wars for the new American century. And then Obama comes in and he's supposed to be the antidote to this, but Empire uh, with a human face. Yeah. And right? he just made it look he for some people and not people who are wanting to be in the professional, you know, liberal class or whatever, they he's their hero. And then you so you you have him, but it's a he's an illusion. I mean, he is the a, a, an illusory yeah. human being. He's one of the most um in non-substantive people that I can think of. I, I, he is not. He is corporate. He is a he is a human finger in the air. To yeah, see he's an apparition. Corporations you know, he, are are directing him. Yeah, uh, and then you then at the end of him, the the system itself is so, you know, um, unhealthy and decrepit at this point that you get this Russiagate spectacle. Yeah. Like you get the problem is Hillary. They put a guy, uh, someone up who's so repellent. That even the person that they thought was so repellent that the other person could win, you know, they thought Trump was so hideous that it would help them to get their own flack into office. And then Trump wins and they lose their minds. And it, it, here we are still, I think, in a we have a, it's even it gets, seems to get crazier year after year. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, I think Obama, you know, uh, he was, uh, as I said a moment ago, he was basically an apparition, right? He, um, and and my take on Obama was, you know, hope and change, all that sort of thing, right? Uh, what did Obama actually attempt to do? He 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 tinkered with method. No more ground wars. We'll do this with drones. The obvious example. And proxy but, proxy armies. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He tinkered with method. That seems to be plain. What didn't he do? He did not touch. He tinkered with means. He left the end alone. The end remained empire, right? The end remained American preeminence, right? Uh, that was his big failing. That was his big fraud, basically, right? Uh, he yeah. left. You know, he left the he left the principles of the American Imperium completely alone, right? Uh, uh, uns which are yeah. typically unstated. I mean, he he didn't state them and defend them. He didn't state them and refute them. He went along with the cover story of American benevolent leadership. Yeah, good, exactly. Good for the whole world. Right, right, right. Back in uh, when was it? Around two thousand five, two thousand six. That period. No, maybe earlier. Uh, maybe just after 2001, um, uh, Bill Crystal, whom we all <laughs> have an opinion about, let's leave it there, right? Uh, <clears throat> had an opinion piece on the Times uh, op-ed page describing America as a benevolent, the benevolent hegemon. I, I, I just thought, what? Tall tales are we telling? There's no such thing as a benevolent hegemon, right? Uh, there is. Every single empire in human history is is that, according to themselves. Yeah, that's you. We make the point upside down, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. This this issue of uh, 
you know, uh, of how, how we deal with uh, how we think of Obama and Russiagate. And is this going to where if the trend continues and it's mm-hmm. only going to the madness is going to accelerate? What is this? Where are where are we headed? Because we, we are headed to a, a point. And I know you don't know this any more than me. And I kind of would like to know, because if we're going to all get nuked, it would change my in a year. I would change my plans for the next year. <laughs> where, what? Where does where at what point is the absurdity so much that it, it leads to some kind of change? Because I think that we're getting there. I mean, Xi Jinping was just saying the top priority of the world is to end conflict and in, in, to avoid a wor- worse conflict in Israel and Palestine. <laughs> and we need to cease fire right away. So there are sensible and powerful people in the world, and they seem to be gathering strength. But it all, but it seems like the U.S. is almost looking for a way to blow everything up. Well, who's, who's gonna, what's going what's to win? The forces uh, of reason, or are we just yeah. is this the fate of humanity? With with reference once again to two thousand and one, uh, I postulated um, in the aforementioned books, three books back now, um, that America had twenty five years from two thousand and one to manage the end of its hegemonic position. It could do this with courage, imagination, creativity, right? Uh, uh, Love, the of guts. humanity. I mean, right. there, are things, right. there are good things that, we, that could resonate yeah. with people. Mm-hmm. And, and we used to have those things, you know. Uh, uh, um, you know, the wisdom to be able to say, okay, we, we, need, to, we need to tread the soil of a new landscape, Right? But that's okay. We can go into the unknown and do well. We could do it that way, uh, or we could go down viciously, violently, and so on. I, I reckoned we had 25 years from 2001. We haven't needed 25 years, right? We needed considerably less. Um, uh, where are we going? We are not going to. We the the end of American preeminence is obvious, right? Ray McGovern once said to me um, years ago. All sensible people in Washington know that the imperium is on the decline. The project is to prolong it as po- as you know as far into the future as possible. That's. That's that's the consciousness in Washington. He's the unstated consciousness. Okay, uh, so we're not going to do this well. Uh, you know, Ukraine. Who, who you, we do? I need to list for your listeners the, you know, the, the Syria, Libya, what you know, um, Iraq, Afghanistan. You, your listeners know it as well as I. I'm positive. Um, um, but something else is happening. And uh, I think uh, when we, how are we going to date this, uh, uh, Aaron? Um, the the genesis of this, I, I think it was a gradual phenomenon. Uh, um, the the rise of Russophobia in America after two thousand sixteen is certainly a, a, a very significant uh, uh, punctuation, you know, milestone here. Right? What we have here, uh, very discernibly is the uh, coalescence of what the Chinese call a new world order, and I'm perfectly happy to call it that myself. I have called it that in numerous columns, right? 
um, the non-West, the non I, I have argued 20 years or so, parity between the West and non-West is a 21st century reality, whether we like it or not, it is coming. Right? Uh, it's maybe more than, I mean, parity may be short-lived. There may be a superiority of the non-West <laughs> yeah. on the trajectory that both sides are headed. I mean, that's going to happen. If yeah. There's not something, yeah. something doesn't change. Uh, uh, and that's what we're witnessing. The, the irony here, most people miss, is that the non-West, across the board, uh, the Indians, the Chinese, the South Africans, the Brazilians, are doing what we said we wanted them to do in 1945, develop, become prosperous. And uh, yeah. we, we left out and become influential, right? Uh, when I was out in the field as a correspondent, um, one, of the, one of the sources of, of Western power was we have the only markets. If you want to sell something, you're going to sell it to us. Nobody else has any money, right? Uh, and if you want to sell something to us, then you're going to have to take our conditionality and coercions and so on and so forth, right? Uh, control of the financial system, uh, control of the um, control of world trade. Uh, that's no longer the case. China is a big market. Russia is a big market, right? Um, Iran can sell its oil. We want to sanction Iranian oil. Well, it can. It, there are other markets for it. Um, and so I, I think these are components of this world, new world order. And I, I, I think that the, 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 I don't like the phrase, but the tipping point here was um, the the wild disorder of our so-called rules-based order. Uh, Which, by the way, you didn't start hearing that term, at least I didn't, until it was already such a joke. Like, I know. They did, it's like they didn't have a name for what this was because they didn't want to name it because it really what it is is the U.S. is the globo sovereign, right? Yeah. And they don't want to say that. Right. So, so they, it's rules -based and they needed one. a word for it, so they say rules-based yeah. international or sometimes liberal rules-based international yeah. order, but – Another it's, one of my favorite they, phrases. They didn't, help it. They didn't yeah. euphemize it. They call attention. I think it's actually serving to call attention yeah. to the, the current absurdity. Yeah. The the other phrase in certain way longer lived is some um, global leadership. You know, uh, what does that mean? Right? Um, leadership of the free world. Yeah. You know, yeah. Thankfully uh, you don't hear that quite as much. So I, I, I think the, the, the wild disorder that uh, – characterizes when do we want to count libya uh, uh syria the iraq and afghanistan uh the cumulative the the cumulative effect of these situations and now ukraine of course uh, and certainly the middle east uh, the mid east with israel um the cumulative effect i think uh, at at a certain point the non the leading nations of the non west said this is too much it's becoming dangerous. There are no adults in the room. Um, let us exercise our uh, uh, accumulating influence. We actually have things to say now. We're not just listeners. We're also speakers. Um, and um, 
you know, the, the great manifestation of this drift, or one of them, was the joint declaration uh, uh, President Putin and President Xi issued on the eve of the um, Beijing Olympics in 2022, a few weeks before the um, Russian uh, intervention in Ukraine, right? And a 5,000-word document, absolutely extraordinary. I, I push your listeners in its direction without hesitation, right? Um, uh, it didn't start there, but that was the formulation of it, right? And um, uh, not to go too far back in history, but uh, if you read that document carefully, what you see in it, uh, and this leads to an important point, what you see in it are everywhere evident the, f the five principles that Zhou Enlai articulated uh, first in his negotiations with the Indians in in fifty three fifty four, and, and then he brought them to the Bandung Conference in uh, of Non Aligned Nations in in fifty five. Well, they tried to kill him on the way. On yes, the they way did. He didn't the get conference, but he survived. He didn't get the, the right plane or something. Right? Uh, the Cashmere Princess. They blew it up, but he <laughs> you know your stuff, right. like an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. Now. I, you know, I'm fascinated by Joe, right? And and I'm fascinated by that period, the um, the the, the non-aligned movement. Um, by the time NAM was formally declared in Belgrade in '61, the five principles were, I think, ten or twelve. Okay, uh, uh, why am I mentioning this uh, so prominently? Well, it goes this way. Um, I think the Cold War suppressed, not extinguished, but suppressed um, the, the very admirable post-1945 principles that, that percolated all through the non-Western nations because it was not only post-war, it was the great age of decolonization. Uh, uh, and you got all these incredible leaders, Nasser, Nehru, Nereri, Patrice Lumumba, Sukarno, Joe, right? Um, that was all suppressed. It, the world became binary, okay? But I'm avoiding the word extinguished because those, those desires, those impulses, those, those currents in history were not extinguished. And um, at, when the Cold War ended and the wall came down and so on and so forth, what we saw was... Um, gradually and then more explicitly the non-western world saying okay we want to be just ourselves now as we were intending to be uh in the late 40s 50s and 60s and i think that's uh so you're getting uh you're getting a a, a revival i do, nobody mentions it explicitly and i don't know why but it's everywhere the the five principles that uh Joe wrote and became the um, the bedrock of uh, of non-alignment. They're back, you know. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I think this new world order is um, is the best we've got for the twenty first century uh, as as grounds for some optimism. Yeah, you know? uh, well, because they're calling for China and Russia are not saying we should be the ones who are 
the global dictator. Right. They're saying that the they should people should observe international law. And, yes, and respect sovereignty of other countries and exactly, respect the security exactly. interests of yeah. of other countries, especially great powers, which the U.S. demands it's for itself. I mean, the Monroe Doctrine is basically like we control this hemisphere by fiat. Yeah, and then meanwhile, the U.S. can can go right up to anybody else's border, or in the case of Taiwan, to like you know gin up potentially a war or uh, over a territory that the U.S. acknowledges as part of China. I mean, this is. It's astounding. It's a, yeah. the the um, hubris of the U.S. Yeah. and the bellicosity of these people is is amazing. If you can if you can dis, dis, sort of abstract away from your own American mindset, yeah. which is to put bullshit colored glasses on you. I mean, it's really something. And it's it's it is something to see it kind of coming like the illusion is evaporating in real time. Yeah, I I think uh, one of the things I urge your listeners to note um, is these nations are not against anybody. They're not against the West. They're not even against America. Um, uh, America will remain a very strong, influential country, no matter what its fortunes are, right? Uh, There's no point in making enemies of the West. Uh, But the invitation is join us but hegemony is out of the question. Western superiority, 500 years of it, is over. You're going to have yeah. to check that at the door, right? Uh, profound. It is profound. Yeah. And I feel like so few people even get it. Uh, even on the left, they don't. The left is so, the, the, what passes for the establishment left, because they have to be, so it, it, it's for what part of the culture of the establishment left, if we can call it that, to be critical of every other country too. You know what I mean? Like it's a mm-hmm. way to avoid being accused of, I don't even know what being a Putin apologist or, a, or which is an echo of the, of being a red or something, but it's like, this is, this is where we are. We are headed. This is a profound thing. And the, the, it's a, it, the, there's no real strong constituency in the left that is mm-hmm. pointing to this and, and pointing the way forward as no. of yet. And it's that no. this is what is, is a little scary. Yeah. They can't see straight. I, I, I've, it's easy. To, it's easy for any serious student of history to look back and understand the, the progression of history, right? Uh, the long durée, right? Uh, but it's very, very difficult to understand one's moment in the present as a moment, as a historical moment, you know, uh, because you're inside it. You can't see it. You can't understand. It's hard to understand yourself as a, as an historical figure, you know? Uh, um, but if we can manage that, it is to me, uh, unmistakable that we are living through a, a profound moment in history. Uh, I used to say it'll get a chapter or two in the, in the history text, Forget it. It's gonna, it's gonna have its own shelf, right? Uh, this is this is very big, um, and uh, we Americans, post post war born Americans, were brought up to um, assume everything will be as it is eternally. Um, we will be able to consume and buy new cars every other year, and you know, go to the movies. When everything will be calm, right? Uh, uh, and we are not trained to live through 
a world of profound change and transformation. But that's what we're living through, you know. Uh, I think others are better at that because the French, they, they lived through two world wars. The Belgians, you know, uh, uh, the Russians, the Chinese, they understand change. understand war in a way that Americans absolutely do not yeah. uh, that much is certain and I mean I think the Chinese have to as well I mean mm -hmm. they World War II was the great cataclysm that forged this new transition of Western imperialism and consolidated it under US rule but for the other country and the, the Cold War we spent basically sticking it to countries that helped us defeat the Axis because the Axis was the anti-communist pack. I mean, I know China wasn't fully communist then, but they sure did beat up on our, our, uh, mm -hmm. the Japanese. Sure did beat up on them. But the losses of these two countries—it's taken them this long to recover. And when you think about what they went through in World War II, you kind of understand because they lost together maybe 50 million people, maybe 45 yeah. million people. Hard to say. And what did we do for the Cold War except try to stick it to them in every way possible and not let them trade with us, not share technology with them in a meaningful way? Uh, they could have, we could have traded with them. They wanted to do business with us. We, we created a quarantine around them for yeah. geopolitical interests because we just couldn't absorb them. And that fundamental issue of not being able to either destroy or accommodate these two nations yeah. has been uh, this obsession with the, the, the U.S. And I, in a sense, the policymakers, the imperialists are right. I think that they can't really accommodate them in a way that will allow them to maintain control over the globe. Because maintaining control over the globe for one nation, especially of white people who have induced some animosity, let's say, over the centuries, mm -hmm. it's just not feasible. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's astounding to think of the millions of people that died in those two countries, China and Russia, and how they still, and they withstood the Cold War, they, they still survived as, as peoples. And now they are going to ultimately triumph over this. I mean, people like Paul mm -hmm. Nitza or must be rolling over in their graves. Yeah. Uh, Brzezinski, you know, I hope that they are, I hope that their eternal slumber is not restful. Uh, <laughs> these, the men that gave us this, this monstrous behemoth. Nobody uh, in a position of influence in Washington, so far as one can make out, um, is wise enough to sit down and say, the greatest thing I can do uh, is to begin to bring America into the process of transformation we were discussing earlier. Nobody has the guts to do that, right? Uh, it's all very primitively conceived of, uh, I don't want to, dec no decline on my watch, I'll hand it over to the next guy. Right. Um, what was the Churchill quote? Like, I didn't defeat the Nazis just to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire? Yes, yeah, something. Like that. Yeah, that's the same. That's that's what I'm talking about, right? Uh, but wisdom lies elsewhere, right? Uh, a really wise leadership would would be able to say and guide the American people uh, into a, a period of transformation that would be 
uh, uh, numerous things, very uplifting. We have a new project, right? Uh, and and another thing, uh, 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 this seems to be totally lost on people. Uh, if we if we if we uh, dispose of the rules-based order, global leadership, and all that. What, an, what a fabulous unburdening it will be for us, carrying all this weight on our shoulders that we insist on keeping there. Uh, it would be transformative. The, uh, a, a, a leader who would be wise enough and capable enough politically and so on, to begin to put that across would be, would be Mount Rushmore great. You know, uh, he would be a, he or she would would be a an historical figure right uh but we're nowhere near it of course yeah it's there do not seem to be the forces in the establishment to give adequate support to someone to make a really logical and reasonable and moral argument about to the u.s public about how it's in it's in the interest of of, of morality and your own material interest and your own security to change course here because yeah. i believe i i am as much as the u.s has pissed off everyone for good reason for its crimes of you know murderousness and <laughs> expropriation etc etc I, I still think that the other world leaders are pragmatic enough, and they've also lived under siege conditions in different ways, at least in their, their peoples have, and they may have themselves in, in different ways indirectly, that they would still want to work with the U.S. just to smooth things over. If of you course. had new leadership in the United States, and, and it would be a much more, you could negotiate things from a position still of some strength if the U.S. would negotiate a new way of, of a new international regime, essentially, to yeah. handle uh, exactly. and adjudicate yeah. issues pertaining to international law and diplomacy, but no more, you know, no more coups, no more magic dollar privilege of the U.S. to, like, dominate and immiserate everyone, no more invasions and bombings and no more biowarfare programs that put up, you know, lead to a pandemic, most likely, it seems to be what happened. I mean, none of this, yeah. all, uh, yeah. no nuclear doomsday hanging over everyone. If we just have it. Sh we should be approaching a golden age of humanity, where we work together to solve big problems, and the biggest barrier to that is our own, the the apex of this regime, the, the, which I yeah. wouldn't want to call it our own government because it's a regime that rules over us in a top-down fashion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, FDR's death was a big, big moment in. We lost. Um, we lost an opportunity to enter upon what Arthur Miller called later on a beautiful moral world. Um, the Cold War. Henry Wallace. Was, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a, to exactly, me shows, a, exactly. shows, shows premeditation, you know, because yeah, they got yeah. rid of him before Roosevelt died. And, and and why did they get rid of Wallace? It, you, you know the answer as well as I do. I'm sure your listeners do too. Um, uh, and the last time we had a, uh, a an opportunity like this was um, the the assassinations of the '60s, all, all four of them, counting Malcolm X and King. Right. Um, yeah. uh, we we had an opportunity then 
to to live in a, in a sane uh, to take from Arthur Miller a beautifully moral world, right? Uh, and um, it, I think it was precisely to extinguish that opportunity that the, all four were killed, right? Um, yeah. You know. Um, anyway, you know, I I don't uh, I, I I don't. I, I I don't carry around a, a heavy weight of pessimism um, uh, about all this. Uh, why would one get out of bed without a certain measure of optimism? Let me tell your listeners a little story. I I had second to last book. Uh, I spent a lot of time reporting in um, India, and I came across this really splendid scholar named Shiv Viswanathan. Uh, in uh, Ahmedabad, and uh, he ran a he ran a, a, a sort of a think tank there, a research institute, and he was he was a, he, a, a wonderful man, a really pleasant, jovial personality, but smart, really smart. His books are very honored. Some of them in Eng all of them in English. Anyway, um, on my last day with him, I I leaned across the desk and said, uh, Shiv. I always end my interviews uh, in, in circumstances such as ours with the question, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Um, and he didn't miss a, a beat. He just smiled and said, if I weren't an optimist, why would I bother? <laughs> why would I, if, if I weren't an optimist, why would I bother with critique? Right. You know, yeah. You know, uh, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we keep going. And I think going back to the book, um, I think a, a very important key to this is the restoration of the press as an independent pole of power, not not to put the whole thing on the shoulders of journalists, but it is a very big part of 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 finding our way through this to a better future is is to have a press that properly informs people so they can act uh you know with with discernment and good judgment right uh, that's that's one of the things i want wanted to mention uh, stress in in that brief book you know uh, well i think it's uh it's a fantastic book as a memoir of someone who's worked in journalism and been able to observe, especially, you know, you, you're there, you, you begin your career at a time when uh, it's not so rosy and you, so it's, you're not, you don't seem overly, you're not so, you're not old enough to be fully absorbed with the sort of, po the, the USA triumphalism of post-World mm -hmm. War II. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's not as though you entered as a person with, a, you know, a whole lot of rosy mythology uh, in your mind about the way the country really works but you you really were because you had a critical eye i think you're able to chronicle uh the way that the the profession was was and was not able yeah. to stand up to the general thrust of empire yeah and do you think it could have been any different or is it just something in the human condition uh, and a and a fixture of civilization which is always you know indistinguishable from empire in a bigger sense that you, you, they never really can tell that these powerful empires and civilization in general can never really totally tell the truth about itself. 
And so it's this ideal of journal of Western journalism is of objectivity uh, is, is, you know, it almost can be a cover for what they're really doing, which is kind of, you know, uh, reproducing the dominant order. I mean, is it, can it, how can we, how can we change this cycle? You've been a part of it. And you're like, how do you get people, how do you actually tell the truth when power structures make this so, so difficult? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I think the, the, uh, you, you make a very astute point about the, the necessity of, the necessity of falsehood and misrepresentation in the context of any hegemonic power, right? Uh, a hegemonic power, I laughed at Bill Crystal's thing, uh, the benevolent hegemon. By definition, a, a hegemonic power is going to deprive people of their freedom of choice, right? Uh, so that's true. Boy, what an interesting connection, Aaron. Uh, um, hegemony requires... Uh, a corrupted press. Interesting, right? I, I think democracy is 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 in that way. It's just, it has never existed really without empire, and so that's always been a an empire. You know, democracy rests upon ideas of people as being equal and having some rights and so on. But empire is is the opposite. This to me that is like a it's a conundrum of our civilization in a way. It's like this sort of yin and yang of. It, it, it takes civilization to, to get people to be advanced enough that they can set broken bones. Yeah. That's, and that's something impressive, right? Yeah. But to get to that point, you have to expropriate, you know, people or kick sort of nomadic peoples or hunter-gatherer peoples off of their lands and so on. And you have to brutalize uh, people just to get that level of organization so that you can set broken bones. Yeah. This, we can't. We haven't. We haven't. We're not honest about the yin and yang of our own civilization and the darkness. We just want to. We just want to create our own halo and then worship it. Yeah. And that the press has done too much of that. And that's until humanity can start to rationally deal with these things. I just. I just. I. I feel like all, we're just the latest and greatest version of this, of the of empire. Uh, yeah. And. Yeah. And it's time to for humanity to progress, but yeah. we're the main people stopping it. You, uh, you know, I, I, uh, you mentioned my earlier days in the, in the, in the craft. Um, uh, you know, I was kind of a child of the sixties, right? Uh, who, who you were at that time, depending on which side of the barricades you stood. Right. Um, um, and it was a time, uh, it, it, you know, going back to my old friend Shiv Visvanathan's observation, it was a time of considerable possibility, right? Um, uh, if 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 the anti-war movement did not believe in if if the if King and so on did not believe in the potential for change, why would they bother to 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 repeat Shiv's question, right? Uh, and so I. Uh, I I I I don't think we should look at you know I I don't think we should take your question as as burdensome and frightening because there is no answer right I I think the answer lies with us you know uh, the, this um, Israel Gaza situation now I I, I think honestly uh, mentioning in recent columns we we are being asked to 
except at this point it's so it's become so extreme that we are being asked to accept uh that decent sentiments are indecent um i i think there you know there there is a limit to this i'm not going to tread on the soft ground of predictions because uh every time i think americans are going to be fed up they're they're not <laughs> um uh, or they are and they don't do anything about it uh but um you know i i, I think things are reaching i'm a bit wandering here forgive me i i think things are reaching a, a point where we really do have to uh be confident that a limit that we are approaching a limit uh and um and at that when we come to reach it there are many many people who uh are already acting in in the name of possibility more will and uh you know having lived through the 60s not like so i didn't live as some sort of raging activist i don't want to give the wrong impression but i was part of it um uh, uh we can get there again is is my point right we can get there again. Right. And guess who is well, up to, so it's up to us, right? It is, but it's not just up to us. I, it's been occurring to me more and more as I, I try to be aware of, like, how does my own perspective, you know, somehow blind me to some things or make something seem less obvious, which is that really that we're not alone in this. The, it's, we're, as Americans, we look at this and we're com- – communicating with other Americans on American platforms and in English typically, or maybe some other people outside of the country, but mostly Americans. And we think that we well, can't really, you can't fix this or that problem in the U S because the power structure is just not receptive, but there is a whole world outside of us and they are more on the side of yes. a, a internationalist humanism that uh, is, is very positive and that is in the best interest of most of the people. And these forces collectively are gaining power vis-a-vis the the status quo of U.S.-led Western capitalist mm-hmm. chicanery, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, it so, so it, there's much more. There's more reason for optimism, even as things are are grim. Yeah, in, I, in our little bubble that we live in, which is the imperial core. My my thoughts here are are, in a certain way, it occurs to me, a response to things I read in my comment threads all the time. Nothing will, you know, a lot of people go into the comment threads in my columns and they're sort of kicking the dirt. Nothing will ever change. You know, we can't get anything done. We have no power. That's a nice idea that we could, that's a nice idea that we could change things, Patrick, but we don't have any power to do that. Uh, in a way, I'm responding to that. I, I reject all of it with, with respect to those who live in that state of discouragement. But uh, to conclude on this thought, think about the Chinese. Think about the Indians, the South Africans, right? Look at, look what their starting point was. Way lower down the scale than ours, um, you know, they were colonized people. They were brutalized people, right? Um, and look how far they've come. It, it, do you think they started out from the point of view, no, we can't change anything. Uh, we're just going to be stuck here with uh, treaty ports and opium addiction, and uh, we're done for, right? Uh, no, 
right? The South Africans, the anti-apartheid movement, right? Uh, look where they started and look where they got. In, 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 against, that, against that thought, we have many, many advantages that they didn't have. We're starting from a much more advantageous position. So uh, pessimism, no, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't see a point of it. It's a failed analysis, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Patrick Lords, I'm going to put links to your uh, Substack page and to some of your recent articles from that as well. And I'll put a link to your book in the show notes. But I, I do recommend that people purchase this book. It's a great memoir. It's, uh, it's not overly long, and it is a good overview of a, of a journalistic career, and you put it in the context that makes it really relevant to today. And uh, I also appreciate your, your optimism about independent media, which I've become a part of after sort of exiling myself from academia. <laughs> uh, I, appreciate the, uh, I appreciate your optimism, and I, I, sh I share it on the whole in the long run. I, the, the one caveat is we may blow everything else up first, and that would be a shame. <laughs> but then at that point, yeah. at least we'll be dead. So there's that. Uh, Aaron, exile is a very nice place to be, actually. You know, there are a lot of people out here, nice people, friendly people. Thanks for having me. Uh, delightful. Uh, muchas gracias, como siempre, mi amigo. Thank you very much, Patrick. thank Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. I'm really happy we were able to bring Patrick on the show. We could have talked about any one of a dozen subjects here, and I could have derailed this even more by talking about Chalmers Johnson in Japan for longer, but we needed to discuss the book. Uh, Patrick has a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to U.S. foreign policy and its discontents, and he's one of the best essayists around, uh, really a great writer in general. Please do check out the show notes for links to his book and to some of his recent Substack articles uh, over at The Flautist. I'll put a link there. Uh, his articles also get published by Consortium News and Shearpost. American Exception salutes Patrick Lawrence for his many decades spent minding the darkness. Mm -hmm.